0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary, discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, is available at prh.com slash air. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature.
0: WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. This hour will be for the birds. Yes, as we look forward to the Christmas bird count and take your calls and tweets, give us a call, 844-724-8255, 844 scitalk Or you can find us on Twitter at SciFry. Tell us what birds you're seeing at your favorite backyard sites or your local parks. But first, some news from the world's biggest island. Scientists in Greenland have made a big discovery, the oldest DNA fragments ever found, and they were trapped in permafrost. These fragments contain samples from various plants and animal life, some long extinct. And it's from a time when Greenland was pretty balmy. A big departure from the icy country we know today. This DNA is a big deal, a full one million years older than the previous record. So why are scientists so excited about this find? Joining me to talk about this and other science news of the week is someone who knows, Umer Irfan, science writer at Vox, based in Washington. Welcome to Science Friday. Welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me back, Ira. Uh,
0: Nice to have you. Okay, Umair, just how old are we talking about for this oldest DNA?
3: Well, we're talking 2 million years old. And as you noted, this is almost twice as old as our previous record for genetic fossils that we found. And this was exciting, as you noted, for a couple of reasons. One, it's sort of a validation of this technique. Rather than, you know, looking at a specific fossil or some piece of resin or something like that, what they did was they actually collected a general sample from the sediment in in the permafrost. And so this is sort of a broad spectrum genetic time capsule that they were able to use, and from there, They were able to decode a lot of fragments of different organisms that were around at the time. You know, DNA is actually a fairly fragile molecule. You know, your body has to use a lot of different mechanisms and enzymes to keep it up to date. So it breaks down very quickly. And so they were surprised to find anything usable at all. And then from there, they were able to reconstruct basically a snapshot of what Greenland was like two million years ago. Well, tell us. Tell us, what did they reconstruct? What they found was that there were a lot of plants and animals there living in Greenland that aren't there now, that basically was a lot more lush, a lot more forest, and also all these other kinds of land animals, including one of the most surprising things was they found fa- um, evidence of mastodons. And previously, scientists didn't even know that mastodons could live that far north. And so it was it was a kind of a, a really surprising thing to just see how diverse and robust this ecosystem was. And as you noted, a complete contrast to where it yeah. was today. And so it shows that there... Greenland actually underwent a very stark change from the kind of ecosystem it was in 2 million years ago to where it is now.
0: Could this tell us anything about DNA evolution?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It shows kind of how organisms adapt over time you know because we were talking about a very different environmental landscape we can see these are the kinds of organisms that thrived under these circumstances and we also have sort of uh, we can compare it to how we've seen the geology and and the climatology of the region change over time as well and so we have sort of this genetic snapshot as well as this geological snapshots that we can compare and see how life evolved or failed to evolve or adapt to some of the changes in the environment and so we've seen rapid climate it changes in the past before and that could potentially give us some insight as to what we can expect into the future.
0: That's really interesting. Speaking speaking of old things, the world's oldest animal, I understand, just celebrated his 190th birthday. I wonder if there was cake. I'm talking about a tortoise named Jonathan. Tell us about that, please.
3: Yes, Jonathan, the 440 pound tortoise, he lives in an island in the South Atlantic called St. Helena, and uh, he was born, as far as we can tell, or as uh, scientists have just kind of established, December 4th, 1832. And so that would be around the time when Abraham Lincoln was making his first run for public office. And so he's been around for a lot. In fact, uh, he's actually originally from the Seychelles, and he was brought to St. Helena as a gift for the governor of the island. And he was already 50 years old at that point. And so uh, he's been through a lot. Well, America, can you tell us how how Jonathan celebrated his birthday? Well, he celebrated with a three-day party. He (laughs) ate a cake made with salad from tomatoes and bananas, some of his favorite uh, food, and he was joined by his companions David, Emma, and Fred, who are also tortoises that uh, he has also been known to occasionally mate with.
0: Hey, So he must be a lot older than the other tortoises then.
3: Yeah, he is. You know, As far as we know, the, large, uh, the oldest living land um, animal. There might be older creatures that live in the sea, but scientists are, of course, very interested in longevity and some of the right. secrets that he may offer. I mean, age has sort of caught up with him. He can't see anymore. He can't smell. But uh, his keepers say that he can hear and that he likes people being around.
0: Mm, that's that's really cool. Happy birthday, Jonathan, from all of us at Science Friday. Uh, let,
3: yeah. Let's
0: let's move on to our next story, a little more serious. It's world leaders are in Montreal now talking about saving biodiversity. This, this meeting has been going on. Now
3: it's what it's supposed to last two weeks. What are they talking about? Right, this meeting just kicked off this week, and if it sounds familiar, it's kind of modeled on the same climate meeting that we just saw recently wrap in Egypt. But this one is focused on biodiversity. It's part of a group called the Convention on Biological Diversity. Just about every country in the world is party to it, except notably the Vatican and the U.S. The U.S. is not officially a party to the accord, but they are sending a delegation to Montreal. And one of the key things on the agenda is actually coming up with a major global treaty that will set definite benchmarks for preserving life and restoring ecosystems around the world. So there are goals then that they have set? that's the tricky thing they want to set about two dozen different benchmarks and once those are set they want to be able to hold countries accountable for them so things like preserving forests wetlands and coastal areas and preventing them from being exploited but also restoring them as well after they've been degraded mined or used for farming and then neglected and you know this is going to require a fair amount of investment and that is also going to be another key thing that you know many of the most pristine parts of nature in the world right now are in developing countries and they want want to be compensated from other wealthier countries to help preserve these uh, ecosystems and these resources. But uh, but we didn't get much participation from world leaders. Well, Trudeau was the only one there, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a much lower key. Um, activists have been pushing for world leaders to attend like they did at the big climate meeting as well. But there's a lot else going on. And so the World Cup is going on right now. Mm. A lot of people's attentions are focused elsewhere. But activists and a lot of scientists say that this is just as important as like the climate treaty because, you know, life on Earth is how we survive. We right. need plants. We need animals to keep life as we know it and our standards of living up. And so this is still something that is very high stakes. And in a couple of weeks, we'll know whether or not they came up with an agreement.
0: Okay, Romero, we'll check in in about two weeks. Uh, let's shift gears a whole lot and uh, talk about something some people might think is gross, but it's actually really cool. And we've talked about it on Science Friday a lot. Fecal transplants, the FDA, Just to prove, the first fecal transplant therapy, let's start with the basics. What is
3: fecal transplant therapy? It's pretty much what it sounds like. It's basically where you take feces, poop, from a donor that's otherwise healthy, and you isolate the bacteria that we think is healthy and then you administer it to somebody who may be struggling with some sort of illness. In this case what we're talking about is a therapy called Yoda. It's developed by a Swiss company called Faring Pharmaceuticals and it's used to treat Clostridium difficile or C. diff which is a Mm. Superbug. It causes life-threatening diarrhea, and most concerningly, tends to affect healthcare settings. So people who are already hospitalized, who are already actually taking antibiotics, tend to be vulnerable to this uh, infection. And it kills about thirty thousand people per year. And you know, in recent years, scientists have realized that in addition to tools like antibiotics, it turns out the microbiome, which is the suite of microorganisms that live inside us and on us, play a really important role in protecting us. And it turns out that C seal takes advantage of people whose microbiomes are depleted. And the thinking here is, if you can restore it, the good bugs can get rid of the bad bugs.
0: And how do, does how do you get the therapy here? How is it transferred to you?
3: Oh, okay. We're going to get into some more goofy details here. Uh, so yes, this is actually administered as an enema. So you use the backdoor entrance into the digestive system and, uh, hopefully it's usually a one and done type deal. And so once mm. the good bacteria take root, that'll help drive out the infection and it can prevent the, uh, antibiotic resistant right. bacteria from taking root. But there are also some other companies that are working on orally administered versions of this encapsulated in a pill. So you don't have to actually taste it, but, right. uh, that will hopefully be a more simple and straightforward way to administer the same therapy.
0: And the therapy is available when are some people already getting this?
3: Actually, yes. You know, doctors have actually been using this for a while. So the FDA approval here is a uh, sort of a regulatory signal. What it means is that more doctors and hospitals will be willing to prescribe it, and crucially, it means that more insurance companies will be willing to mm. pay for it, mm-hmm. and that means more people will have access to this.
0: Yeah. Let's switch gears to a story about another type of therapy. I'm talking about monoclonal antibodies. They, they seem to be kaput for COVID. Why is that?
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the FDA revoked its authorization for this monoclonal antibody called Bebtelovab. telovab I'm sorry, I'm not saying that correctly, but basically, it's a version of a protein that your immune system uses to target COVID-19. But the problem is, COVID-19 continues to change, and we've right. seen with the recent variants and the subvariants that it keeps evolving to evade our immunity. And with highly targeted therapies like monoclonal antibodies, those are especially vulnerable. So we're sort of on this treadmill where the virus evolves, we come up with a new therapy, and then we try, and then the virus evolves again. Uh, the, fortunately, we have antiviral drugs that we're using to treat COVID-19. Those seem to still be holding up. The monoclonals are sort of a second line of defense for people for whom mm-hmm. don't get the antivirals in time or who still end up in the hospital or have weakened immune systems. But you know, we have this multi-layered strategy with COVID and losing any layer can be troubling, especially as we're heading into another winter and we're also having a rise in other infections like RSV and influenza.
0: All right, quickly, let's finish things off with one last story about bad science and a nonprofit that wants to fight against it.
3: Yeah, this group is called Clearer Thinking. And my colleague Seagal Samuel recently interviewed the founder, Spencer Greenberg, and he launched this thing called the Transparent Replications Project. You know, we've heard a lot of chatter about the replication crisis in science, particularly in social science and in psychology. Classic studies have failed to be reproduced. And so, what this group wants to do is to reproduce psychological studies that are published in prestigious journals like Science and Nature. And the idea is one, to validate the results, to see that, you know, if these things actually hold up. But the other thing is they want to actually change the incentives for scientists. You know, getting your paper published in a big name journal, it's a really important feather in your cap. It's a really good star on your resume. But why knowing that your study is going to be checked and double checked might give scientists some pause about publishing the first positive result and force them to go back and actually validate and replicate it themselves first. And that way, over time, we'll have better results getting published Mm -hmm. overall.
0: Hello, Mary. always great stuff. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Humair Ifan, science writer at Vox based in Washington. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, some bad news about declining bird populations, plus your chance to celebrate your favorite birds. Stay with us. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Hi, Ira here. As a listener, I don't have to tell you that the need for Science Friday is stronger than ever. Science helps us navigate the world and make informed choices about our health, our environment, and our priorities. Science Friday is critical to public dialogue about science, and your donations are crucial to our success. Now is the time to head over to sciencefriday.com support and make a gift. Our 2023 programming depends on the generosity of our fans and our listeners. And remember, folks, any amount makes a difference. But the lasting gifts are the ones we can count on every year. So if it's in your power, consider making a sustaining donation. Once again, that link is sciencefriday.com support. And thanks.
1: WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature.
3: Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman,
0: Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same
3: stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts.
0: It's the holiday season, and it's a big deal here at Science Friday because that means it's the annual Christmas bird count. It's starting soon on Monday, to be precise, when legions of pro and amateur birders spread out to take a tally of what avians are hanging out in the woods, the fields, the beaches, and so on. That data helps fuel research into how well the birds are doing, and unfortunately, news has not been too good in recent years. This year's State of the Birds report looked at decades of data from surveys like the Christmas Bird Count, and in every group of birds except one, species are in decline. Worst off are the grassland and shorebird species, where more than 30 percent of their populations have been lost in the last half century. For more insight from the state of birds, I talked with Dr. Amanda Rowald. She's senior director of the Cornell University's Lab of Ornithology for Avian Population Studies. She said the new report was an alarming update to already worrisome news
2: we already knew that there were some problems. There was a paper a couple of years ago published in Science, um, what we call our three billion bird paper, showing that we'd lost three billion birds since 1970s. over one in four breeding bird species. And so this State of the Birds report really underscores that. And what is really alarming is some of the takeaways are that These declines are spanning just about all habitats and all groups of birds, and they include many species that we've regarded as common, you know, for most of our lives. Hmm. Now,
0: the declines were highest for grassland and shore species. As I mentioned before, why are so many bird species in these regions in such trouble? What is threatening them?
2: Yeah, well, there are a variety of different factors when you look at any particular species. But overall, with grassland birds, you know, there we've, of course, we've lost native prairies. I mean, that has been, you know, certainly impacted a lot of grassland birds over the last century. But really, what's causing these declines over the last 50 years or so is the intensification of agricultural practices. So when you look at shifts in the way we farm, right, we have bigger farms, we removed hedgerows, and we don't Take um, land out of rotation. Um, we're applying more pesticides, you know, and herbicides to to the land. So those are some of the factors on the breeding grounds that's affecting them. And for other species, you know, it's also what's happening on the migratory, you know, during the migratory pathway, or on the non-breeding grounds. Many of these species are wintering in areas um, that could be as far away as southern South America. Um, In terms of shorebirds, you know, they're, you know, these are really long-distance migratory species, right? So they're breeding in Arctic areas that are being impacted enormously because of climate change um, and other pressures on the habitat there. Um, they're facing many threats as they migrate down to their wintering areas in South America. So, if we think about where shorebirds are often stopping over, it's in the coastal areas that we like to build um, developments in, yeah. right? yeah, we yeah like that makes to sense use those too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, again, really, a lot of the species we're finding are being hit kind of at various stages of what we call their full annual cycle, right, from when they're breeding to when they're migrating to when they're spending the winter elsewhere.
0: On the list includes some birding favorites like evening grosbeaks, the rufous hummingbird, Bobo lynx, it calls them in tipping points. What, what what was the goal of highlighting these species, and how much trouble are they really in?
2: Yeah, that's a, that is a big take-home message of this report. So tipping point species are species that have lost half or more of their population in the last 50 years, and they're on track to lose 50% more in the next 50 years if nothing changes. So the... The point of really calling these species out is to draw attention to the urgent need to act, right? We, of course, we know we have, you know, enormously important laws like the Endangered Species Act that can come in and help us, you know, at that sort of most critical level, the last gasp species have, right? But that is a pretty blunt instrument, right? If we We're going to do better um, in terms of our ability to recover birds, in terms of the cost effectiveness, in terms of minimizing how conservation actions might disrupt other human activities. All of that is going to be so much better if we are proactive, right? If we take steps before species require listing under Endangered Species Act. So that's really the point of of calling these species out. And you know, you're absolutely right. Some of the species that we're seeing are ones that we know well. You mentioned Rufus hummingbird. Yeah, that's a common, was a common species yeah, in the I Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I couldn't believe Northwest. when I heard that. Now it's,
0: yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's
2: lost two-thirds, two-thirds of its population. Wow. Or um, like chimney swift. Many people might be familiar with those in cities. They hear they chattering, you know, at dusk as they're leaving, you know, the old chimneys or old building structures. Um, And yeah, bobolink, you're right, like that's, I mean, just a common species in many grassland areas, on hay fields. And I think, too, what's really striking is that many of the species we see on this tipping point list... These are species that have actually adjusted pretty well to human activities. So this is not a group of the most sensitive and needing the most pristine areas. These are species that have persisted in the same landscapes that we're using all the time. But now we're seeing problems, right? And that signals problems about our environment, right? Because birds are canaries in the coal mine. And if an environment isn't, um, you know, we share the same environments with these birds. So I think if we, you know, really consider the fact if they're not healthy enough to sustain bird populations well, I mean, then they're unlikely to be healthy for us Mm -hmm. either.
0: You know, I mentioned that there was an exception to the bad news. And I, I want to talk about something Good. That's happening. And I'm talking here about the ducks and the other waterfowl out there that are living their best lives. Their populations are increasing. I mean, they are coastal birds, right? Why are they doing well?
2: Yeah, and some of them are coastal and some of them also are inland, you know, in like the prairie pothole region. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think with, when you look at waterfowl in particular, you know, this just speaks volumes to about how effective we can be with conservation when we have the will to act. And so the, the positive changes in these waterfowl populations, that's because, you know, duck hunters, you know, they have – been supporting conservation of these species um, through, you know, federal excise taxes. You know that fund on the ground conservation. Um, so they've restored wetland areas. You know, places where these birds are breeding um, and you know producing more young. The places they stop over on migration. So again, this it really speaks to the to the impact how we have the ability to turn things around if we want to. And so that's a silver lining. Um, with geese, that's both you know some of these, um, the ability to manage populations, but also geese have developed an extraordinary ability to exploit a lot of um, waste grain in the winter and also to exploit urban and suburban areas. So there with the geese, it's there's a little bit on both sides of the coin there, right? right. They're doing so right. well, they could be a problem for some.
0: You're supporting a bill that's before Congress, and I guess an appropriately called lame duck (laughs) section that would fund more localized investments of money in wildlife conservation. Why does that seem like an important policy move, and and what is your aim here?
2: Yeah, this is um, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Um, And so what this will do is it will provide $1.4 billion in funding that go to states, territories, and tribal nations to fund conservation for species that they have identified are in need. And so if we think about, too, relative to what states and, um, you know, tribal wildlife grants programs currently receive – it's about 65 million, so this more than doubles the amount of um, money that they'll be getting. You know, I like to to remind myself, and, and others even, that this isn't just even about birds, it isn't just about wildlife, you know, you don't have to be focused on conservation specifically in order to benefit from this bill, because when we invest in habitat conservation, we're actually taking a lot of steps, the same steps that we need to do to protect human health and well-being.
0: Dr. Amanda Rodewald, Director of the Center for Avian Population Studies at the famous Cornell University's Lab of Ornithology, thank you for taking time to be with us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Ira.
0: As I said earlier, the Christmas bird count starts next week and winter birding season is here now, even for folks who just want to enjoy watching the fowl in their feeders from the warmth of the kitchen. So did you see something stupendous this year? And are you still hunting an elusive warbler or have you finally seen your favorite finch? Who's in your backyard? And Is anyone missing from the usual suspects this year? We want to hear from you. Give us a call, 844-724-8255, 844 or you can tweet us at SciFry. And with me here in the studio to help us take some joy in birds is Ryan Mandelbaum, longtime friend of the show, science writer, avid birder, He's, been, he's as avid as they come, right, Ryan? It's, <laughs> been, avid. See, it's been a long time. Welcome back to Science Friday. Great to be here, Ira. Thanks so much. You, you were listening along. We were talking about uh, as much as a 50% decline. As a birder, can you actually see this in the field that there are fewer birds? you Around know what it?
4: it really depends on the specific species of bird and um, it's kind of like the difference between weather and climate year to year um, you might see fluctuations of more birds and less birds um, but bird watchers span all generations and if you talk to older bird watchers you often do hear stories about oh this lake was once filled with gulls every year and um, so we all know and it's it's uh, culturally we can all tell that the that the mm. decrease is happening
0: mm-hmm. all right so it's December we've got the Christmas bird count starting next week why are we supposed to go out in the winter Why is that a good time to do this counting?
4: Right. So the Christmas bird count actually has quite a long history. Uh, It began uh, more than 120 years ago. With uh, There was a tradition of of hunting birds on Christmas, and so we've replaced that with counting birds. Um, But also, um, these are the birds that we think of as being the hardy ones who stick around here in the United States uh, through the winter. And then, of course, we can then have counts of where all of our birds go when they migrate south.
0: If someone wants to join the bird count or if they just want to start birding on their own, for the first time, you've got all kinds of equipment with you, but what do you need to be the basics to be a a birder?
4: You know, I would say that it's just start by looking at birds. (laughs) Um, Notice the birds in your backyard, uh, the birds when you're walking through the park. Uh, Of course, people will say you need a pair of binoculars. You don't need a pair of binoculars. You can really notice their behaviors and things without them. Um, But it helps to have binoculars with about an eight-time zoom. Um, And then, as you know, I have a a telescope I use to look at very far away birds. Uh, And then I have a camera because I like sharing my sightings with people.
0: That's great. And what are the birds doing right now this time of the year? What what do they want from life?
4: (laughs) Well, I think a lot of them just want to live through the winter so that they can go and... uh, Breed another year. Um, so right now, if you were uh, to go out in the park, you would see birds um, in flocks or looking for basically roving around, looking for food at their favorite food trees. Um, and then uh, you might even see them in your backyard looking at bird feeders. They're really just trying to survive the winter.
0: All right, we're talking with Ryan Mandelbaum about birds, and this is a Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Lots of people calling in, and let's let's go let's go to the phones now. Hey, let's let's go to. Uh, Ephraim in Houston, hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi Ira, it's, it's, I'm excited to be on your show, thank you. Go ahead, tell us what you've seen. So I, uh, it, it would be two weeks ago on this past Thursday, I, um, I was coming off of uh, Highway 35 from Palacios into Bay City, Texas, which is here in the Texas Gulf Coast, and I spotted an American bald eagle uh, perched up on a tree um, this is crazy because my wife tells me, "Oh, that she saw one. She and her brother in their front yard years ago." I was like, "There's no American bald eagles here," but so in <laughs> fact, there are. And she was right; I was wrong. Wasn't that exciting, right? It, it was. Uh, I was. I was. I was in my truck driving, and I'm driving, you know, sixty miles an hour. But I can, like, I, I constantly, you know, go back and forth and just kind of just scoping around. And it was. It was beautiful. Ira. It was. It was truly majestic it was it was amazing yeah you know i have to share with you i saw my first one this year in upstate connecticut and it was just i couldn't believe i was seeing it too so i share that with you thanks for calling effort thank you so much bye-bye The bald eagle. It's back. It's around. You can see it.
4: Oh, yes. And in fact, uh, I live here in New York City, in Brooklyn, and people might not know that New York can be a good place to see bald eagles. Last year, we had a bald eagle named Rover hang around Central Park and eating gulls uh, all winter long. So, you know, this can be a place to see them.
0: Uh, We have a tweet coming in from Brian who says, Winter is when birders can really appreciate the variety of native sparrows and ducks that visit us from the north. But this year, I'm most looking forward to seeing colorful winter finches like the evening grosbeak beak and red crossbill, yeah. birds that you like, right?
4: <laughs> I sure do. Um, Yes, so the winter finches are my favorite bird. And if you'll allow me, I'm going to dive into a little story about winter finches. Please. Um, So what's so interesting about these birds is that most of them are spending a lot of their time up north uh, feeding on uh, conifer cones. And then uh, what happens is that some of these cone crops aren't very reliable. So after... you know, some years they the cones are the trees are going to coordinate to not produce food, and that's probably to starve out the squirrels to make sure that birds aren't you know that that squirrels aren't kind of eating up all the seeds. Um, and then the birds have wings, so they can then just fly south. Uh, and so a lot of birders are now eagerly waiting to see if their local pine trees or bird feeders are going to take on a hungry flock of crossbills and even grosbeaks and. Every day this month of November, I stood on my roof, and just the other day, a Red Cross bill flew right over my house. It was the best.
0: I'm seeing you smiling. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're lighting up. What is so enjoyable for you about seeing all these birds? How did you get started, and why do you find it so interesting?
4: You know, I started with because uh, as a New Yorker, I actually never really knew that birds were so exciting. I, I once thought they were, you know, pigeons, rats with wings, uh, but then I. Um, I had to write a story about uh, the great blue heron for grad school. And uh, as part of that, I got to see a great blue heron on its nest in Staten Island. And I was just blown away. I couldn't believe how there was this huge bird just surviving here in New York City. Uh, And then my spouse moved to New York and was like, what should our hobby, our couple's hobby be? And uh, we were like, we both like birds. Let's become birders. And uh, they say the rest is history.
0: And so you, you can be a birder in a big city.
4: Oh, my goodness. I would say that New York City is one of the best places to be a birder. Um, there's, so it's not great for the birds. Uh, the New York City is placed right along this migratory flyway. And what happens is birds migrating north and then back south get funneled into the city's parks, uh, Central Park, Prospect Park, places like that. Uh, and then you become much denser, so they're easier to see. Um, so you can catch them in May and September. It's awesome.
0: It's awesome. And we'll talk uh, more with the awesome Ryan Mandelbaum after this break. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844 talk You can also tweet us at Sci-Fry. We'll be right back with lots more questions. Stay with us.
1: You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org slash WNYC for more information. For so many black people, the whiz feels like home. like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the whiz. Listen wherever you get your podcast.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking about winter birding, how to do it, why to love it, what our favorite sightings are. Birder and science writer Ryan Mandelbaum is in the studio with me. And he was telling us, uh, they were telling us before the break that finches are your favorite
4: birds, <laughs> right? I just wanted to come back and uh, say one more thing about you probably have a lot of callers who are really interested in the finches right now, and there's a reason for that. Um, so this behavior that I was talking about, that that they'll move based on food, is actually um, can almost be predicted. So we actually have, uh, a, you know, people will survey the northern forest and see how many pine cones are on these trees, uh, and then use that to determine whether the finches will be in the north or move south. Uh, and so there's a nonprofit called the Finch Research Network that's doing that work. And uh, it's just really cool because then uh, you can predict whether you have finches in your backyard.
0: Oh, that, that is cool. Let's go to the phone. So many people want to talk about what they have seen. Let's go to Marilyn in Seneca, Oregon. Hi, Marilyn.
5: Uh, hi, Ira. I'm so thrilled to be on your show. You're my my secret celebrity crush.
0: Will you, will you tell that to my boss? And <laughs> just, just phone that in. What, what have you got on your mind? Thank you for that.
5: Yes. Um, I So we have a property in eastern Oregon just outside of a wide spot in the road called Seneca. And we are on 80 acres up at 5,000 feet in the Ponderosa Pine Forest. And two years ago, we spotted a pair of great gray owls that were hunting right down in the meadow, right in front of... We could sit at the dining room table and watch them. It was so amazing. And they were just... They fascinated us. And they disappeared. We didn't see them last year at all. And then the other morning, I was sitting down to breakfast, and I saw something moving in the snow... And I looked out, I'm like, how did a seal get here? What is a seal doing in the mountains? And this bird (laughs) is so big. He looked and that head is so round and I got my binoculars and sure enough, the great gray owls are back.
4: That is amazing. Uh, Great gray owls are a bird that I really would love to see. Um, So I have, uh, my in-laws all live in Minnesota. And uh, when I'm out there, I'm always looking for great gray owls. And there's just something about owls, right? Their face, there's some sort of reverence when you're with them. It's just such a cool experience.
0: Boy, are you lucky. Oh, what, a, what a holiday I, present for you, right?
5: I, I, you know, it's like I feel so, like there's, they're kind of magical or they're like from the other side, you know, of the, the, you know, life or whatever, but they are just fascinating to watch. And the thing about the great gray owls is they, they're literally camouflage artists. I mean, they will fly up into a ponderosa pine tree and you, if you don't, if you take your eyes off of them, you will miss them. Well, and I, yeah. Yeah. Thank so you for calling. There, and I, I yeah,
0: thank you so much. You're you're welcome. Good luck seeing that. Uh, Jeff on Twitter says I've been birding for 40 plus years. Moving to New Mexico has been wonderful. So many resident and migratory species here and in adjacent, and in adjacent states, especially Arizona, saw a roadrunner. Not Wiley Coyote. <laughs> Still waiting for my first golden eagle. What's the difference between a golden eagle and a bald eagle?
4: Yeah, so they're two different species, and they have uh, different biologies. They do different things. You know, uh, bald eagles you'll see more around bodies of water. They're fish eagles, and golden eagles will be more on the prairies. Uh, and they look different, but I will say that they're the same size, approximately. So if you see a giant eagle, uh, it, they do look quite similar, and juvenile bald eagles and adult golden eagles do look pretty similar, so you got to be very discerning.
0: I should have that problem.
4: <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> uh,
0: let's, okay, let's go to the phones. Let's go to Catherine in Minneapolis. Hi, Catherine.
5: Oh, hi. Hi Thank there. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I'm calling about city birds. Um, I have a small flower garden here in my townhouse, and in past summers I've had probably up to 10 hummingbirds every summer, um, along with a lot of bees. This past summer, zero hummingbirds and very few bees. And I don't know if it's climate change or the chemicals my neighbors are using or something. The other thing I've noticed is we have a huge increase in the wild turkey population to the point where they're walking all over people's yards and, you know, leaving their poop and everything there. So, <laughs> you know, the decline of one, but the in, uh, increase on the other is what we've seen up here in Minneapolis.
0: Thanks. You're welcome. You know, I have to share that because I have bird feeders. I have hummingbird feeders. And I saw no hummingbirds for like three months until close to the end of the season. And I, too, was wondering, where have they gone?
4: I don't know. I mean, and, and I, I did call on this a little bit earlier that um, these fluctuations year to year are are bound to happen. But, uh, you know, there's definitely if you're not seeing any hummingbirds, um, it's hard to say what's at work. It could be pesticides. It could be there could be something really to be concerned about. But uh, mm. I would be concerned, too, because I love hummingbirds. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll see. Maybe someone will be able to know that. Uh, let's go to a tweet. Dustin on Twitter says so many of us saw the Stellar Sea Eagle in Maine early in January. That's the most notable bird on the continent this decade, now in New Brunswick.
4: I, too, went to see the stellar sea eagle. So, actually, uh, this bird showed up in uh, inland Alaska, and then uh, it showed up on the east coast, this uh, giant Siberian eagle, uh, very low population in, in the, you know in the thousands. uh, And this bird looked like, uh, you know, it showed up and people were like, oh my goodness, what, I have to go see this bird. Uh, And so me and my friend, as soon as we saw it in Maine, we got in the car and we drove up to Portland in that area. uh, And I saw it from about a half mile away and it looked like a person in a bird costume. It was just amazing.
0: And it's not, it's not where it should be. No, no, this is, right.
4: right, This is a Siberian and and, uh, Northern Japan is where it's usually. And so, um, the east coast of the united states is the wrong place for that bird.
0: Wow. Well, so what happens? They get blown off course or is it climate change or do we not
4: know? You know, it's uh for the younger birds there's this uh we call it dispersal and it's a big part of bird biology, right? Birds are um when they're 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 first born, you know, they have to migrate and some of them migrate off course and then if a bunch of them migrate off course and then can establish population there then we have range expansion um, but unfortunately a lot of individual birds will go uh, get lost in the meantime uh, the eagle though I don't know but you got <laughs> to see it I really wow. was amazing one that, of my best birding experiences. That's
0: great let's go to the phone Sandra in Milton Florida hi Sandra
6: hi thank you so much I'm a huge fan and I'm really wigging out now that I get to talk on the phone with you thank you so much you're welcome hey, go ahead. I, I, I live in uh, Milton Florida um, which is like the Panhandle, um, and um, we had indigo buntings probably about I don't know maybe ten years ago um, or longer, and haven't seen them since. So I want to know what did I do to um, get so lucky? They're beautiful, and how do I make them come back? And also, um, we noticed again this year, I only had one hummingbird. um, And I had another friend noted um, they actually found dead hummingbirds. Uh, um, Yes. And so in our area. Anyway. So
0: oh, wow, that's a that that is, conversation. Th- thanks for calling. Mm. That is shocking.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a shame. Uh, the indigo buntings, um, well, very awesome that you had so many. Uh, and they're a bird that uh, they like weedy areas, and I would say they're the kind of bird that if you plant native plants uh, and you know those plants produce seeds, then you might have some indigo buntings show up. So definitely uh, continue to plant native, and uh, that's a great way to do it.
0: Don't give up. Let's go to Lorraine in Westchester, New York. Hi, Lorraine. Lorraine. Hello. Yay. hey,
6: go ahead. Hi, I'm a wildlife rehabilitator with the Center for Wildlife Rescue, Research, and Conservation Inc. And thank you, Iris, so much for this segment on the Christmas bird count and the wonderment of birds. And although there are many uh, environmental impacts that we cannot control now, what what we can do uh, is seventy five to eighty percent of the injured birds we receive are from cat attacks, and um, outdoor cats are really decimating many of the bird population. So it is so important to keep cats indoors and to also plant native plants so that birds will naturally gravitate to your property.
4: Hmm. I'll put a stamp on that. You know, cats should remain inside. Outdoor cats are bad. And then uh, also uh, here in New York City, windows need to be treated to be bird safe. And that usually means putting stickers or making them so the birds can't see them.
0: You you agree, Lorraine? Oh, yes, well.
6: I do, absolutely. All
0: right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that call. And speaking of uh, New York City, let's go to Elizabeth in Manhattan. Hi Elizabeth.
6: Hi. Hi
0: there. Go ahead.
6: Well you're I am a big fan. Um I just was calling to say following up. I love finches and I try to attract them. So I have mostly house finches. My golden finches have definitely fallen off, I would say, in the last three years. I see a lot less. I was very lucky to have a lot of kinglets coming in and out of the yard, which I loved in the fall, and they've gone away in the last three to four. Um, right now, I do have nuthatches, and I have tufted titmouse, who are on the feeder and grabbing the black oil sunflower seeds. I always have a lot of mourning doves, um, a lot of chickadees and sparrows. And I had woodpeckers, but they do seem to have gone away, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure why. We might have lost some trees. But we have a pretty good collection in Upper Manhattan.
4: Oh, That's good. That's awesome. That's actually a very similar selection that I have in my backyard in Brooklyn. Tufted titmouse especially is a bird that uh, it kind of goes in waves. Some years we'll see a lot and some years we won't. And this year, if you walk down the streets of Brooklyn, you will hear tufted titmice in almost every single tree. And it's uh, they are very cute. So I, I really like that about it.
0: Thank you Elizabeth.
6: They are cute and they're they're very fast. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> Bye-bye.
0: You're welcome. Let let's cycle right through to Mike in Milford, Connecticut. Hi Mike. Hi, how you doing? Hi there. Go ahead.
3: So, I really like
0: land-faring birds, but we are definitely looking towards the ocean and we we are missing the
6: buffleheads this year.
4: Buffleheads. Oh, they're very yeah. cute. Yeah. I, I I haven't seen a very many buffleheads either, although in Jamaica Bay we, we usually have have some.
0: Hmm. That that may be part of the problem we we, we were talking yeah. about. The, the the birds are missing. Uh, do you usually see a lot of them, Mike? So we would see probably fifteen to twenty. Um, they're gorgeous birds, but similar like like what you were saying with uh, planting food. For, you know, planting uh, certain plants for to attract certain birds. We can't do that with buffleheads because they're they're seafaring. Right. So we're, we weren't sure if anything was going on, you know, under the water that we're just not aware of. Wow! Right. Thank you. Thanks for reporting in, Mike. Sure. Thank you. Right. Let, let's let's go cross country to Chris in uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. Well, not quite cross country. <laughs> just a south. little yeah. south. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead.
6: Um, I wanted to share a, a story. A couple of years ago, we had a large Bradford pear tree taken down. But the gentleman that took the tree down did not have a stump grinder. So as the years passed, we had a pileated woodpecker that came and pretty much finished the job for us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they make a big hole, don't they? They they actually cut the tree in half for you? No, it was just the stump. The stump. (laughs) But he
4: pretty much got rid of it. Yeah, maybe put out some suet to say thank you.
6: Yeah, and it's interesting because they strike the wood so much more slowly than the smaller woodpeckers
0: yeah. that you hear
6: in the trees. Yeah. And they're really cool to watch.
0: Yeah, they are cool. Thanks thanks for calling. I remember the first one I saw, I didn't know what it was. It was a, a, a hole the size of a shoebox oh, wow. in a tree. Yeah. And, then I, then, and I knew
4: that's what it was. They're heart-stopping when you see them like fly across the road. I mean, they're big birds, these pileated woodpeckers.
0: Yeah. Ryan, I know that you're joining the crew for this year's Christmas Bird Count, right? That's uh, put on by the Audubon Society every year. Where are you going?
4: Yeah, so counting? I will be in uh, Glacial Ridge National Wildlife Refuge in northwestern Minnesota, which is a grassland wildlife refuge. And uh, it's a little different. Some years I'll do the Brooklyn Christmas Bird Count uh, in which there's we can expect to see between 100 to 130 species of bird. Um, far fewer in northwestern Minnesota. It's quite snowed over. But... The birds I see there are some really cool ones. Um, in previous years, we've seen greater prairie chickens, northern shrike, uh, rough-legged hawk, snowy owl. So, uh, what we don't have in the number of species, the uh, sort of different stuff is is really thrilling for me.
0: And we want to reiterate, this is a, a citizen science project, right? You don't have to be actually know a lot about birds to that's, get involved
4: that's right and uh, a lot of these uh christmas bird counts i mean there's a big element of camaraderie there's often a potluck at at the end of it but um, really some of them just need eyes um you know they'll pair you with the person who'll identify the birds and then you just have to go and find the birds and finding the birds is often half the battle when you're going through thickets or on a grassland or anything like that
0: let's see if i can get one more call in before we have to to say goodbye uh let's go to vicky in portland oregon hi vicky
5: Hi. Hi, go ahead. Well, what I'm seeing now, which happens every winter, is golden crowned sparrows, dark eyed Oregon juncos, and black capped chickadees, along with the resident song sparrows and Anna's hummingbirds, which live here all year round. Mm. What I'm not seeing at all anymore is house finches, but we stopped, I stopped putting seed out because we have a rat issue in the city. We're very close to a busy street and lots of restaurants.
4: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I thanks think for calling. That's really cool because you know you're really observing kind of migration in action. A lot of these birds are winter birds that have decided that your area is uh, is a good place to be. So that's kind of one of the reasons I like winter birding so much.
0: What's a, what's a final tip you can give to people who go out on the bird count? What's uh, I guess certainly dressing warmly,
4: right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wear a lot of layers. Um, keep your ears open. Honestly, I I often hear birds before I see them. And uh, just go out as much as you can, keep your eyes open, and then uh, be nice to the birds. Um, Make sure you're doing it ethically. Don't uh, go playing audio or trying to feed them or anything. Just experience the world for what it is.
0: Is it easy to find a spot to go to, to know where the bird counting is, is happening?
4: Yeah, sure. So I would just Google Christmas Bird Count, and you'll find the websites where you can find, um, they'll have a map with all the local coordinators on it. Um, And then, uh, you know, if you don't feel like doing the Christmas bird count, then uh, there's the eBird website you can use to get started, get a field guide, or uh, do like I do and just look for the birds in your backyard.
0: And the birds you're going to be looking for, what would you really like to see,
4: to add to your collection of bird sightings? In the world or in Minnesota?
0: Uh, I'll take one of each.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, like I said previously, the great gray owl is a bird that I would really like to see. They're just such beautiful birds. Uh, and then in the world, uh, I don't know, there's a bird that makes a really weird noise in uh, northern South America called the capuchin gir- bird. Okay. It sounds like...
0: Also, I can't, can't top that. We, uh, <laughs> thank you, Ryan. We have to make like a bird in flying. Yep, uh, that's at what at we're doing. Ryan Mandelbaum, science writer, and birder, bird based in Brooklyn, New York. And, and also thank you all great callers. we we. Love Love to hear from you. And if you're interested in the Christmas bird count, we kept talking about this. We've got more information linked on our website at sciencefriday.com slash Christmas birds. One last thing. Our Sharp-Eared listeners pointed out that during our news roundup last week, we mispronounced the name of the Hawaiian goddess of fire, Pele, in our story about the Mauna Loa volcano and the unusual lava formation known as the hair of Pele. Our apologies. And thanks so much for everyone who brought our attention to it. Here's Rasha Aridi with some of the folks who helped make this show happen.
6: Thanks, Ira. Our digital producers are Dee Peterschmidt and Emma Gomez. Ariel Zich is our director of audience. Sandy Roberts is our education program manager. Annie Nero is our individual giving manager. And I'm Rasha Aridi, radio producer. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Russia. BJ Liederman composed our theme music, and we had help this hour from audio engineers Lisa Gosselin and Kevin Wolf. And of course, if you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, yes, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Of course, you can also contact us the classic way. I guess it is classic now scifry at sciencefriday.com. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.